and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz! Welcome to another episode of iBuzz. Today we are going to talk a lot about human-animal studies and stories that rabbits tell. And it's a delight to have on the podcast today with me, Margot DeMello, who is a human-animal studies scholar and teacher animal advocate and author of many books, including Why Animals Matter, Animals in Society, Morning Animals, and Speaking for Animals. Welcome, Margot. Thank you. Really delighted that you're on the podcast with us today. And so much looking forward to hearing about your work, your research, and all your writing. Uh, perhaps you could start with a short introduction to yourself and background. So for people who don't know about your work and your books, it would be really great to hear. Okay, so I'm a um, cultural anthropologist. I um, began um, working in the field of human-animal studies in the early 2000s. That's um, not what I trained in uh, because no one was doing that kind of work when I was a grad student. Um, and I have been invested in the field ever since in terms of writing and teaching and helping to build the field. Um, I've done that at the same time as I've been teaching as an adjunct for uh, many years, um, uh, primarily at Canisius College in their anthrozoology program. And then I'm just going to be starting a new position as an assistant professor of anthrop anthrozoology zoology at Carroll College in Montana. Um, and then I also rescue rabbits and um, uh, have worked with a number of other nonprofits over the years, um, but especially at the Animals and Society Institute, where I helped to build the Human Animal Studies program there. Wonderful. And for those not familiar with the field of anthrozoology, could you talk more about what that actually, what is a degree or what is the field of anthrozoology? Sure. So anthrozoology is the basically the study of human-animal relationships. Um, there are other names for it. Um, human-animal studies tends to be used in sort of the qualitative social sciences. Anthrozoology tends to be used in a little bit more kind of the, the, the quantitative side of social sciences. Animal studies is the term that's used in um, the humanities. And then critical animal studies is a related field, an overlapping field that also looks at the relationships between humans and other animals, but from a critical um, sort of liberationist um, perspective. Okay, so there's different colleges in the world that are giving out these degrees. When you study um, for such a degree at Canisius College or the Carroll College in Montana, where you're 
probably soon moving to her to uh, what yes. will be studying what kind of topics and content can they expect Oh, it's so, 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 so broad. So, you know, we have students at Canisius and I expect also at Carroll who are dog trainers. We have students who um, are interested in working at animal sanctuaries or humane organizations. We've got um, humane education is one uh, focus of the field. Animal assisted interventions is another major focus of the field. At Carroll, for instance, there's a lot of work with dogs and horses. Um, but there's also uh, the areas of the field that, that work more on a slightly abstract level. There's a, a huge body of literature on animal ethics now uh, that is an important key component of the field in my world in the sort of qualitative social sciences. Um, we look at the sort of um, cultural and social spaces where humans and animals interact and uh, try to sort of break that down to try to understand what's happening. Um, and part of, part of what the field is, is it's a lens through which we can look at other species um, in a way that sort of challenges our anthropocentrism, that challenges the human-centered nature of our social institutions, and that recognizes that humans and animals have always, always been interlinked in culture, in society, in religion, in economics, in kinship. Um, and, you know, we're just finally starting to realize that now and talk about it now. So when people do an anthropology degree and when they do an animal studies degree, would you say that they are slightly different, different types of lenses? And, you know, if, if what would you advise if you want to study one or the other? Well, I would definitely suggest to any students interested in this field to go to the Animals and Society website. And what we have there is a list of every single university around the world that has any kind of a program, that has any kind of a course. Um, and it's a beautiful way to kind of see what sort of strikes a student's fancy. Do they want to get down and dirty and work with horses and children, um, you know, uh, in, in a sort of a healthcare setting? Do they want to work in an educational setting? Are they interested in interrogating meat consumption by doing an ethnography of slaughterhouse workers? Um, all of that is possible depending on the type of program and the type of um, you know theoretical and methodological kind of aims of the program um, it's it it is growing and changing so quickly there are now so many options um, now once you get a degree whether you end up with a bachelor's there are bachelor's programs there are minor programs there are master's programs and there are a few PhD programs not that many but there are more uh, developing now. Once you get out of one of those programs, what kind of a job can you get, which of course is what a lot of students are concerned about. Um, those that are working outside of academia once they get their degree um, have a lot of choices. You know, there are so many areas in the world in which animals are involved. Um, those who are working in academia and want to be a professor afterwards, that's a little bit tougher. We're still at a place where um, um, there are not a lot of jobs, teaching jobs 
in the field. And so most people who teach at a university in the field do so within whatever department they got their first degree in. So a lot of people might have trained in English literature or anthropology or psychology or social work, and then they took on an animal degree on top of that. Um, and so, you know, you can still teach in your kind of home field as well as in this field. Um, but as the field expands, we will start to see more jobs that are very specifically animal studies or anthrozoology jobs like the one that I'll be starting um, next month. Wonderful. So is that a new um, anthrozoology degree at uh, Carroll College? No, it's actually one of the first. Uh, oh. They were the first minor program anywhere. Um, and then they got their um, major a few years later. So it's not at all a new program. One thing that is going to be happening in this program is that we're going to be expanding it from its its kind of traditional focus has been um, service animal oriented. Um, students come specifically to work with dogs and to work with horses. Um, my joining the program is gonna bring in a broader um, social science perspective. Um, and so I'm hoping that the students will um, uh, see more and, and learn more perhaps critically about our relationships with other animals because the reality is if all we do is focus on oh there's health benefits to living with animals and they make our lives better um, that is such a tiny 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 little part of, of how we interact with other species in our daily lives so that's what um, the program is going to be growing to include a lot more of that. Wonderful. So actually some years ago, about six years ago, uh, together with a good friend and colleague of mine, an animal ethicist in, in Denmark, Jess Harfield, and myself, we published in a journal called Critical Animal Studies. It was actually mm -hmm. about eating animals at the zoo. And mm -hmm. so there's quite a lot of people interested in different, you know, philosophical or academic writing around human animal studies and zoology. What are some of the other journals or you know, great resources where people could go if they want to read more, apart from, of course, the wonderful books that are on this topic. Yeah, the two main journals in the field are Society and Animals, um, and that's published through the Animals and Society Institute, and then um, Anthrozoos, and that's published through ISAS, the International Society for Anthrozoology. Those are hands down the two main journals in the field. Uh, Anthrozoos skews a little bit slightly more natural science quantitative, Society and Animals skews a little bit more qualitative interpretive, um, but the two together have have such a wide array of the kind of research that's being published today. Um, but again, you can expand that. And, and again, we have a nice list on the Animals and Society website of all the journals in the field now, uh, including critical, um, the critical animal studies that you published in, which is also an important one, um, you know, the ethics journals and the law journals and the art and animals and the literature and animals. Um, it's, it's quite broad now. Wonderful. So we'll make sure to put lots of uh, links with this podcast to all yes. these uh, beautiful colleges and, of course, Animals and Society Institute and, and lots of other links so that people can have a look at this. And importantly, also, a lot of the people listening to these podcasts are people who are already working in the field um, or in, in the zoo or aquarium or a research facility or anywhere right. else. And, of course, Many of these professionals are working full time and might be interested in either modules, uh, courses, but also, you know, part time or full time degrees online. And would you right. say that is something that is available 
or is absolutely yeah yeah absolutely there's a few programs the the kanisha's program is a good example it's a hybrid online in-person master's program so every semester begins except for this semester because of the coronavirus but typically every semester begins where all the students and the faculty get together for an intense week in buffalo which is where the college is in new york and um during that week of classes and workshops and seminars um you know they get to know each other and begin to sort of gel as a group and then after that first week everyone goes home and the rest of the program is online um, and it's a perfect kind of a program for professionals um, and I, I think that's why Canisius does get a lot of people who are already working like you said in zoos or you know other types of facilities and want to expand their education um, so that's a nice program for that. Exeter has a PhD program that is also online. That's the only online uh, PhD program in the field right now. Um, and they're turning out some um, uh, really interesting work. Excellent. So we'll also put those links in. I indeed also saw the Exeter. Um, I remember looking at that one. That one also looked very, very interesting because everybody is always looking for expanding their knowledge and their skills. So it's really wonderful that today there are a lot more of these. And do you envision that the Carroll College also will have online courses available in the future? Probably, but I can't, you know, I can't no. say. It's so hard right now to look at what's going to be happening in higher education after this time that we're in. So absolutely who knows we'll hear from you if it happens i'm sure yes um, yes so you talked quite a bit already on uh, the animals and society institute can you tell us a little bit more about what the institute does and some of their aims Sure. So the Animals and Society Institute has had a number of um, sort of incarnations. It was started by Ken Shapiro, who's a, a psychologist, and the original group was called Psychologists for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And it was the first group that um, was about academics who were interrogating animal issues, um, which again had never ever happened before. Um, that group eventually became what it is now, Animals and Society Institute, with a couple of main focuses. Um, one major focus, and this comes from Ken being a psychologist, is a focus on the um, question of violence towards animals and violence towards humans, the link between the two, the kinds of interventions, you know, that, that can happen to prevent that kind of violence and to treat offenders. Um, so that's one big part of the uh, organization. Um, another big part of the organization was what I did from 2004 to 2019, and that was run the Human Animal Studies Program. Um, and that is um, specifically aimed at helping students and faculty to find the field, to get resources, um, and then to build the field itself. We have all kinds of materials on starting a minor and starting a major at your college and different ways to collaborate with your colleagues to you know, build these kinds of programs. Loads of materials for faculty who want to teach a class for the first time that they've never done that before. Um, my textbook, uh, Animals and Society, came out of my interest in making sure that the field was um, sustainable and that it had the resources that it needed. That's where that textbook came from. And then prior to the textbook, I wrote, or I, sorry, I edited um, Teaching the Animal, which is a collection of 15 different chapters on different fields, uh, you know, women's studies and sociology and law and political science. Um, 
in which animals can be taught and how to do so. So um, both of those books um, were part of the goal of increasing the visibility of human animal studies, the legitimacy of human animal studies, the opportunities for students and scholars. Um, so that's, that's what that uh, organization um, is really doing. Um, they've got one final piece, which is public policy. Now that we're starting to collect a pretty large body of literature about animals and humans, how could some of that literature be used to shape public policy about animals? So that's the other kind of now um, third piece of what that organization does. Great, we'll definitely put a link to that also for people who are interested in checking out all the resources and other options that are there. And one of the things that is really striking when, um, of course, you look at you know, your, your website and related posts, there is a lot of rabbits there. And yes. uh, one, of the, one of the things that you know, I saw was the House Rabbit Society. Uh, can you tell us more about what that is? Yeah, so the House Rabbit Society is, um, it was, it is the first um, organization dedicated to helping rabbits, to saving rabbits. It began in 1988 in California, where I lived at the time. Um, a woman named Marinelle Harriman ended up with a rabbit in her yard, knew nothing about this rabbit, knew nothing about caring for rabbits, and ended up with a rabbit as a house pet, which at that time in the 80s was just not thought of. Most people who kept rabbits around the world for pets, because as we know, rabbits are used for pets and for food and fur and for, you know, medical research, but as pets, they've still been a really sort of third-class pet, primarily kept outdoors in a hutch with no medical care, no companionship, um, you know, and the lives that, that those rabbits led were often kind of grim and short. Um, with Marinelle finding this rabbit, Herman, in her backyard, um, she started reaching out to other people who live with rabbits and other people who were doing what she intuitively thought to do, which was have this rabbit live in her home as a family member. And by doing so, she was able to experience so much more of what these animals can do. Um, rabbits have been thought of historically as stupid, dull, um, and that's part of how they've been treated. Um, by bringing them in the home and seeing all of their personality and all their capabilities and all their interests and and their agendas and their motivation and all that we realize how fully um i want to say human um how um how rich they are as individuals um so that's what house rabbit society is so house rabbit society was started by marinelle to specifically reach out to other people who thought of having rabbits as house pets and then to rescue and advocate um, on behalf of rabbits. So we now have chapters and um, rescuers and educators all volunteer all around the world. Um, we have rescued, I don't know exactly the numbers now, it's something like 30, maybe 40,000 rabbits since we began. And we're responsible for, um, you know, I think I can say this with some, um, with some element of truth for changing the status of rabbits. The idea of rabbits as an, uh, as an animal that could be respected and um, treated with compassion and kindness um, is fairly new. And a lot of that comes from the work of House Rabbit Society. So I've been involved with them since 1989. So it's been a um, pretty major part of my life. Wonderful. I can't wait to hear more about, you know, the stories that rabbits tell. 
Uh, but we're going to come back to that later. And the important part also is that, of course, a lot of facilities have rabbits, whether they're rescue centers or some zoos and other facilities, they house rabbits uh, for either interaction with the people who visit or to learn more about rabbits. And also some of the teaching schools have rabbits. And I thought once I was in England at a teaching school about animal care and welfare. And what I really liked there, because the general public was able to visit this facility, this school, and that they had, you know, um, a really expansive kind of habitat for the animal. And they had a little garden with all the things that are safe and good for rabbits. And it was such a great way of you know, informing the public of actually, if you have a rabbit living with you in the family, then what could you be doing to improve the life of that rabbit? Because of course, as you know better than I, there are still so many uh, rabbits that live in very small, you know, cages in people's houses, and that you know, really looking at the well-being of these rabbits, that you know, what does that mean for them to be able to hop around or, you know, have a social life depending on who they are. So I'm really, I think it's so great that there is a, a whole society dedicated to house rabbits. And, and as you mentioned now, other organizations all over the world who are also doing the same thing now. So, you know, it's, it, almost any place, not, I absolutely shouldn't say that, but so many places now have their own organizations um, that do the same thing, although, you know, usually with the cultural tweaks based on the culture in which they, you know, are found, but to see this interest in rabbits and um, in treating rabbits differently in so many places around the world now is unbelievably um, sort of satisfying. Yes, absolutely. I know in the Netherlands there are some, you know, dedicated courses for, you know, behavior consultants for rabbits and there mm. are some people that have their own organizations in, you know, teaching your rabbits to participate in their daily care and, and whole books have been written about it that I know from some of my my colleagues, um, Konijn Weiss in the Netherlands and Bernice Muntz who has a book on, on, on um, rabbit training. So that's pretty pretty neat I think that they are getting uh, a lot more attention so yeah we'll, yeah we'll definitely put a link to the house rabbit society and, and people can then have a look depending on where they are in the world and listening from if there's any um, of the facilities or organizations nearby yeah we have a list on the house rabbit society website of every rabbit rescue organization that we know of in the entire world so yeah Excellent. <laughs> Great. So you have also written about rabbits, but before we go there, um, um, you have written a lot of different books and, and a lot of them are not necessarily directly related to animals, but more to um, your work in anthropology. Um, but you have quite a number of books that are specifically on animals and maybe you can give short introductions to, to these books and, and why you wrote them. For example, Why Animals Matter. Why did you write this book? I mean, I've re I read it, but maybe you can talk a little bit more about this book. Yeah, so Why Animals Matter came out of a conversation with a good friend of mine, Erin Williams, who at that time worked at the Humane Society of the United States. We had also worked together before in Defense of Animals and at House Rabbit Society. Um, and we just thought that we wanted to write an, um, you know, an overview of the issues facing animals today. You know, clearly there's loads of books like that. Um, that was when I was kind of first getting into the field. And so, you know, it, it differs from, I think, a lot of the 
sort of um, trade books, non-academic books, that it has a little bit kind of the, more of the history and more of the sociological stuff about animals in there. So it's um, um, aimed at an audience that is interested in reading from a very sort of critical frame about our relationships with other animals. Um, but it's not a you know, it's not an academic book, but it was something that we thought we could do to reach um, the, the population of educated lay people who are interested in these issues. Um, yeah, so that's what Why Animals Matter was for. Um, as I mentioned, the, um, um, the Animals and Society textbook and the Teaching the Animal edited collection both um, were either written or edited by me specifically to build the field um, because I knew that um, uh, professors need more resources. Um, at that time, there just simply was nothing whatsoever. And so uh, if you wanted to teach in a college that students typically use textbooks, there were no textbooks. You had to build your own. Um, and so that's that's why those two books um, uh, were published. Right. And sorry, before we move yes. on to, to your next books, what are some of the topics that, um, that you have um, discussed in Why Animals Matter? What are some of the, the animals and, and fields that come in, uh, into discussion in this book? So we talk about animals and entertainment. Why do we want to look at animals? Why do we want animals to entertain us? What are the different venues in which animals provide entertainment, what are the regulatory conditions in those industries and venues, what are the impacts on animals, what did the you know literature at that time tell us about the impacts on the animals. So we did entertainment, there was a big chapter on hunting and relationships with wildlife. Um, obviously there's a big chapter on meat and there again we tried to do a very broad look at the consumption of meat um, with a very strong, the book has a pretty strong U.S. focus. Um, um, so again talking about everything from the environmental issues to the um, uh, animal welfare issues to the issues with respect to the human workers, you know, which, by the way, is something that we're seeing right now with the coronavirus, at least in this country, in the United States, so much of the spread of the coronavirus has happened through these um, meatpacking facilities, slaughterhouses, and other industrial agricultural um, venues in which humans and animals both suffer tremendously together and we're seeing that now with the virus really play itself out in a ugly ugly way um, you know and then of course we also talk about pets so we basically in that book talk about the main areas in which animals and humans exist and coexist um, and the problems associated with those great thank you and um I think the book is about 13 years old now. Um, yes. Would you, are you considering like writing another book on this topic or what are some of the issues um, um, that you've seen over, over this more than a decade? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It clearly needs to be updated, but you know, both Aaron and I, um, have you know been moving on to other other projects we also of course you know i didn't mean it that way but more. yeah 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 <laughs> but one thing that i have done is um i just updated the animals and society text that had been published 10 years ago and a new version of that is going to be coming out 
probably in early 2021, if not end of this year, because again, coronavirus has kind of changed things. But that book is completely updated. Plus, I try to put in a much more international focus, less of a, of a English speaking, you know, focus, although obviously, you know, because it is in English, that's who most of my readers will be, although there's also a um, Japanese version. Um, um, so that has been updated and, 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 and that'll, I think, help, but the actual, but the Why Animals Matter book, we're probably not going to go back to. No. And so what are some of the changes or some of the developments that you have seen uh, in animals, uh, towards animals and society in different topics over the last decade since you have written your books? Yeah, well, one of the biggest changes has been in the legal um, arena. Um, so much has changed in terms of the kinds of um, both legislative victories that animal protection organizations have had, but also the pushback from industry. Um, you know, the last 10 years has seen a rise in, you know, the idea that um, animal advocates are terrorists and that they are a threat, which they are to <laughs> certain industries. Um, so that's really kind of ramped up in the last 10 years. Um, and then certainly the, um, the alternative meat um, industry has completely changed um, in the last 10 years. In the last five years, the alternative meat products and the kind of financial investment in those products has been unbelievable. Um, um, and then the cellular meat, you know, and, and not just meat, but cheese and eggs um, and even milk, um, that is going to be coming down the line. The idea that people could actually eat meat that is not made from an animal. So with the rise in not just all of these new alternative meat products, but um, a major heavy focus on the creation of cellular meat, on um, you know actual meat that's not created from animals, but just created from cells. That's going to be a game changer for meat eaters because the idea is that it not only will look and taste just like meat, but will not harm any animals. But the hope is that with the right kind of financial incentives and all of this, that the um, that these products will be um, inexpensive eventually because right now to eat a non-meat product versus a meat product tends to be sometimes more expensive. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see what's happening right now with respect to um, the, the way that that part of the sort of the business sector is moving. I mean, we're even seeing, you know, major meat companies investing in these technologies because they know that it's inevitable that there will be um, a pretty strong contender to meat out in the market soon. Yes, so that's in, indeed a very interesting field. And I'm also glad to hear, like legislation is not my background, but I try to follow it here and there. And I think that was at the time also for me, reading uh, Why Animals Matter. Um, I, I remember some of the sections in your book about which parts um, of like the transport or you know, which parts of the animal's life was protected or right. what it was not and also how old some of these legislation uh, old this legislation was so and i think it's such a key also to animal protection in in all kinds of course not only for like which i call and many of course call invisible animals like farm animals 
that have uh, pretty terrible lives, which is also, you know, the argument we make in our in our paper, our eating animals at the zoo, because their welfare is really pretty much disregarded. So, and I think I'm, it's I'm really- I'm so excited, by the way. I wrote down that paper when you mentioned it because I need to go look it up. I, I'm so excited about that, um, taking a look at such a great subject. Yes, yeah, the idea of the paper is about, you know, we often talk in, in the zoo and aquariums, we are concerned about the well-being of the animals. And today, of course, professional good zoos are really, you know, trying to promote optimal well-being, positive well-being of the animals in, in care. Uh, but then, of course, when you go and eat in the restaurants or at the hot dog stands, then, you know, suddenly the, the animal welfare aspects are not uh, taken right. into consideration. So that's really that tension right. that we talked about and and also in messaging, of course, um, like for example, sea dragons are highly endangered species and shrimp fisheries, you know, are mostly the, the cause of that. But then, you know, you can go to a restaurant and eat shrimp. So there is this, even though it's not necessarily the same species of shrimp, but it's kind of, you know, that whole educational messaging and the way right. of the animals that we're trying to discuss there. And it's right. really, you know, great to see that so many things are changing also from a legislation perspective. And I thought it also what was interesting is that, you know, we often um, use the word activist as um, something that belongs into the domain of the people who are, are working for animals like um, animal protection agencies or uh, organizations such as the World Animal Protection. But I think, you know, I, I often say, you know, the word activist has been hijacked and I want it back. Um, mm. because, you know, we working in, in all kinds of facilities or working for animals and conservation and, you know, looking at their welfare, uh, we are as much activists for those and voices for those animals because there's so much change that also happens from within um, that I actually think that word, you know, it doesn't, it seems now to belong in a different domain and different mm. field. And mm. so that's one of the things that I think is important to talk about because we are all activists in one way or another. And so mm. you know, that's just uh, one of the things when, when we talk about words and what they mean, uh, that, right. that's an interesting thing uh, to discuss as well. And, and you right. know, talking for animals or being the voice for animals, wherever you are doing that, whether you're in an animal shelter or being a caregiver in a zoo or, or in, a, in a research facility, but you're speaking for animals and, and you have a book about that, which I have right. actually read. So um, it's on my list, but perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about speaking for animals. Yeah, um, and, and it kind of comes from what you were just mentioning, the way that we as animal rights um, you know, activists, this goes back to the rise of Western animal rights in, in, in Britain in the late 19th century. Um, there has been this idea that um, we are the voice for animals, that, that people who care about animals are, are the voice for animals. And there was something about that that always kind of troubled me just a bit. Um, and so I just sort of wanted to explore that idea of what does that mean for humans to speak for animals? And so it's an edited collection and it's um, sort of a cross-cultural collection and multidisciplinary. And so it, you know, it has everything from literature to comic books to dog poetry to um, 
um, um, Bunspace, which is a social media platform for rabbits um, <laughs> to talk to other rabbits. Um, and so it's, it's all of the different problematics of, on the one hand, trying to get the animal perspective and trying to get into the animal mind. And at the same time, what are the ethical problems with even trying to do that? And what are the responsibilities entailed in trying to speak for another? Um, so that's what that book looks at. Um, it's just a lot of different ways in which we can sort of, again, interrogate the idea that either animals can't speak for themselves and we have to speak for them, or, you know, maybe they are speaking, but nobody listens to them and nobody takes the time to understand what they might be saying. And then when we do speak for them, again, what does that mean and imply about their agency and our agency and who has the right to advocate for and speak for others? Um, it's, it's a tricky subject. Yes, I think it's a really fascinating subject and a very difficult one, as you say, because it's... Um, um, yeah, it's, it's also this part of, like, are we understanding them well enough to know what it is that right. we want to say? And as right. you say, you know, are we listening? And sometimes, certainly in my work, working with lots of facilities all around the world and working with people and, and animals, I see a lot of animals pretty much yelling, um, but yeah. don't seem to listen. Or, of course, the other side where it's just the subtlest little thing and people just are so attuned to it and they seem to really speak, you know, mm. or elephant or whatever, you know, right. they are attuned into. And then, uh, yeah, how can you be that voice in, in a meaningful way? And at the same time also, it also makes me think about, um, you know, for some of the things, so for example, I have a background in marine mammals and when you start to think about their world and how they communicate or the feelings mm. that they might have, like, I don't know how to echolocate, yeah. uh, but I also don't know what, you know, subjective world comes with that sensory right. system, right? And so right. then how can I speak for it apart from, right. you know, thinking about the things um, like I might not hear so much echolocation or if I hear it, then how do they use it? Or how relevant is it to their being, even though they have evolved it for hunting and, and not necessarily, obviously, communication, which is done in another system. But it's, it is very hard, I think, to, to have, a, have a, a, a voice in all these different species and how to be that voice. Um, and I find it very interesting. So I really look forward to, to reading this book. Um, yeah, it's a very intriguing, uh, difficult subject. Yeah, I'm um, um, uh, Gay Bradshaw and I. Um, Gay Bradshaw is a psychologist, and she and I are teaching a class together right now through the Carrillos Institute. It's an online class, and it's um, on um, indigenous and other research methods in animal studies. So what we're trying to do is bring in other perspectives on animals into sort of you know what has been you know a a western dominated field um and and those are the kinds of issues we're sort of grappling with again in that class again who has the right to speak for someone else um you know is it is it the american um you know 
animal welfare professional who goes to China and, you know, looks at the bear bile problem? Is it Chinese people who live amongst the bears? Is it the bears themselves? I mean, who has the right to speak for others? And what are the implications of that for everybody else? Um, um, yeah. Yeah, that is very interesting because I think especially for all of us who are wanting the best for animals, we are quick to kind of jump in there, uh, especially if we're very concerned about their well-being, mm -hmm. um, including, of course, the, the bile bears that you just mentioned and wanting to get them out of there. That it, um, And I think for many of these issues, we don't necessarily think about whether we have the right to do so. Uh, and who has the right to do so? Because it almost seems like a no-brainer to to have to act, whoever you are, whether you're a child right. or yeah. And so, and of course, we also know that you know, depending on language, and you know that better than I do. But there are so many different languages that have different words, or a lot right. more words, or no words. Right. And uh, I, I have encountered that quite a lot with my travels around the world where people say, we don't really have a word for that. Or we have mm -hmm. like 10 words for that or mm -hmm. a whole sentence for describing a certain concept that has to do with the natural world or with animals, which is, of course, also how you are going to look at the world and how you feel in the world, depending on the language. Right. Right. Right, absolutely. Well, and, and just also the idea of kind of human-animal differentiation, the separation of the human and the other, everybody else, all other species, that separation, which is artificial um, and a social construct, is at the root of so much of Western ways of looking at and understanding animals, which is why, um, like in the class that, that Gay and I are, are, are doing, um, we're so kind of intent to try to, um, you know, to use a kind of a hot topic word, decolonialize our own research. Um, what can we learn from other people who don't have that as their basic sort of ontology, that humans and animals are not the same? What are those relationships that, that can come out of a different, um, a different understanding of the place of the human and the animal kind of in the world together? Um, you know, uh, but even that's not, e not uh, well, it's obviously it's not easy, but it's, it doesn't, it, just because, you know, maybe one culture has a different, you know, um, belief about their relationships with other animals doesn't necessarily translate into good, quote unquote, treatment of those animals. So it's just, it, if you are a scholar, but also an animal advocate, or activists in any way, shape, or form, as you were mentioning before, it's, it becomes difficult, not because a lot of activists or academics are worried about being accused of being activists. That's one thing, which is already an issue, I think, for a lot of us. But the other thing is, um, where should our allegiance lie? Does it lie with the animals that we're looking at or how much of the people that are involved with that is also of concern to us? Um, and as an anthropologist, for me, the people have to always be present as well. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we could talk a whole, we could do a whole podcast just on that topic. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll, um, we might have to have you back someday, hopefully. Uh, but obviously, you know, speaking for animals, being the voice for animals has also to do with, 
you know, really caring for animals and really wanting the best for them. And sometimes, you know, when it comes to especially quality of life issues or having to make difficult decisions, um, you know, we, we have to either let animals go or, or animals die natural death because of, well, could be illness or becoming old or so on. And you have written a whole book around, you know, rituals and other aspects of mourning animals. Could you talk a little bit more about that book, please? Sure. So that book was sort of in my head for a couple of years because um, there was like two or three years in a row that I was going to conferences and events where people were talking about death, where there were articles on animal death. And I kept hearing it and kept thinking, oh, it's so interesting that, that people are starting to talk about this. Because when you, you know, are an animal rescuer and you live with large numbers of animals, you know, I've experienced hundreds of deaths of, of animals that were close to me. So on the one hand, this is happening in my personal life. There's just this constant, sort of, when you look back, it almost for, feels like just a parade of deaths. And, and, and at the same time, the fact that, that there were some people starting to talk about it in academia, and I thought, okay, this is something that I think we can talk about now. And so, you know, I just started to reach out to other people um, who I knew were doing work that dealt with death. And then I also just put out a public call to see what people who I didn't know were doing. And I got just such an amazing, um, you know, amount of such interesting work on, you know, taxidermy, pet taxidermy and, um, um, you know, saving the DNA of your dog so that you could have him cloned or um, all of the different ways in which we really go, you, you might even say sort of overboard in terms of mourning our companion animals and the animals that mean something to us. But then when you compare that to the animals that we don't mourn to the billions of animals who die every single year at our hands that nobody even sheds a tear over it. So the book is sort of like the Speaking for Animals book in that it's kind of an ambitious project. So it's a little bit unwieldy. Again, loads of articles, cross-cultural and multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary, all trying to tackle this question of who gets to be mourned how is it done with respect to cultural practices um, and who doesn't get to be mourned? And what does that tell us about who is grievable and who is not grievable? Um, and that, I guess that's the, basic, that's the basic idea. I also introduced the book by going back to Stories Rabbits Tell. And that's another book that I co-wrote with a friend, Susan Davis. And in that book, Susan, um, we sort of split up the book. The, so the stories rabbits tell covers sort of the history of rabbits in human culture, everything from the mythology and the folklore to the ways in which we use animals in um, the industries today. And so um, Susan was um, assigned the really the worst chapter in the book, which was the rabbit meat chapter and how, you know, that works. Um, and one thing that she did was she was on um, some of the meat rabbit listservs, just kind of listening to people talk about killing 
rabbits because uh, one of the things that we find with rabbits and I, i'm sorry to change um focus here but one of the things that we find with rabbits is that in the united states they don't have any kind of legal protection um as meat animals they're not considered livestock so they don't have any protections that are given to any other livestock so they can be killed any old way you want and that leads to all kinds of terrible things so on these listservs these people who breed and kill rabbits talk about it openly while they're talking about it openly, Susan happened to be present one day when somebody mentioned that her dog had died and the dog was going to the Rainbow Bridge. And the Rainbow Bridge is this idea that we find in a lot of cultures that goes back to the 90s that there is this sort of semi-heaven for animals, this place that animals go after they die where they hang around and they get to play and they get to be healthy. And then when their human dies, their human and the, and the animal, the dog or whatever, goes over this bridge and it's the rainbow bridge. And where they go, nobody really knows, but it's just sort of a, a sort of semi-heaven. So while Susan was in this listserv, She's realizing that I'm in a place where people are talking endlessly about killing rabbits, but now someone would just mention that their pet dog has died and that dog went to the Rainbow Bridge. And so the two of us were talking and we realized, so the dogs get to go to the Rainbow Bridge, but the rabbits do not. What kind of an animal heaven is it that allows certain kind of animals in and other kind of animals don't even get to get in? And that sort of was the kernel that then eventually turned into that book. Wonderful, so interesting. I'll, I'll definitely have to read that. Um, but going back also to mourning animals, because I think, like you say, you know, who gets to go into this heaven and who doesn't, and which animals do we mourn and which animals don't we? And of course, a lot of people working with animals, like you say, you know, I also, you know, worked with animals for 15 years before starting my, my company. And so now I actually miss having, you know, the animals that I care for, but I still work with a lot of people who care for animals. And, you know, it is always very difficult when you are, you know, having to say goodbye to an animal. And, and it's really beautiful to see how many different organizations and facilities now have, you know, all kinds of rituals uh, to say goodbye before animals uh, pass over or once animals have died. Can you talk a little bit about what type of rituals you are writing about or that you found uh, in your morning? Sure. Well, let me, let me give um, an example. So another thing that, that is in the book um, um, was um, I decided to have um, some uh, photography in the book. And so I invited a number of photographers who work closely with animals to create little photo essays, all dealing with death in one way or another. And so Joanne MacArthur, who's a well-known um, animal photographer, she submitted um, photos of an animal sanctuary and the way that they dealt with death in that sanctuary. So for instance, one of the photos is of a woman um, who's washing a dead pig. Um, it's a young pig, so it's a, it's a small enough pig that she's able to hold the pig, but she's just very lovingly washing the body of the pig before the pig is going to have whatever ceremony and burial the sanctuary was going to give the pig. But I've never seen anything like that before. And it very much reminded me of a lot of cultures where the family will do the same thing for their loved one, where, you know, Japan and a lot of other places where you will wash 
the body and lovingly dress the body of your mother or your father or whoever that loved one is. It's that last way in which you sort of take care of them. And to see that at this animal sanctuary with this pig, I just was um, a little bit blown away by that. So that was just one kind of um, little sort of a place that opened up a space to see the, the love and the care and the sadness, but again, the love and the care and the respect that was given to this little animal who, as we know, millions of those animals are killed every single day and then consumed. And again, you know, I want to say no one sheds a tear, but that's another uh, part of the book. There's another chapter as well that deals with um, that secondhand and thirdhand displaced grief um, that a lot of animal activists become overwhelmed by PTSD and grief from not just the, the deaths and the struggles that they have in their own world with rescuing animals, often from terrible situations, but the knowledge of all of the other deaths happening around all the time and for some people that can be in itself overwhelming and even debilitating and of course it's completely not acceptable to have that kind of grief right in any society you grieve a for humans if if we're going to let you grieve for an animal it's got to be your own dog or cat but to cry over some pigs that you do not know that were killed at a slaughterhouse that's a crazy person Yes, and, and I think, you know, often also, I also hear this sometimes in other facilities where people, you know, are kind of dismissing, you know, feelings. I remember when one of the first animals that I ever worked with in a rehabilitation center died in my arms. I was really, you know, overwhelmed by that and also um, very, very sad. And, and one of the first things that my supervisor at the time said, it was like, well, you just have to get used to it. That's just how it is. So kind of man up, right? So yeah. there's a lot yeah. of dismissal or, you know, uh, also, and, and, and this is, I'm a woman, of course, but, uh, um, you know, a lot of men are being, you know, said, well, you know, you don't react like a woman, you know, you're like a softy. Um, mm. And so there's not necessarily, you know, always space for, right. you know, the feelings of sadness or grief that we have when we lose animals that um, even if they are, you know, dying because they're just very old, not necessarily these very, you know, violent deaths like you have in slaughterhouses, but animals that people care for in, in zoos or in other facilities. Um, yeah, and luckily, you know, many zoos have now uh, really beautiful programs where people can say goodbye to the animals before and and also during the, the process and, and have rituals for after. And of course, every, you know, person almost that I know that have cared for animals, they have their lockers and their houses and their phones <laughs> full of animals and albums of uh, to remember them by. So there's just, uh, yeah, so many beautiful rituals. And, and I think more and more, this is certainly something that is happening in zoos and aquariums and not just actually for the people, but also for the animals. So um, what is interesting to see is that when animals die, we often, you know, remove them uh, because we need to do some sort of necropsy and look at why did the animals die and more and more zoos and aquariums are really looking at okay yes this is an important part of what we do but at the same time how do we allow the animals you know if a, if a primate dies or an elephant dies or 
a dolphin or you know an iguana how do we make sure that the animals have an opportunity right. to say goodbye so that's another right. important part of mourning and and have you also you know can you talk a little bit about you know that side about you know animals mourning their loved ones right well i know in house rabbit society we realized many many years ago that um our rabbits are become absolutely devoted to their partners and their friends and that when one of them dies they need to see and be with that body. So um, it's it's organization policy, and I think a lot of people who live with rabbits now do this, that when a rabbit dies, they do um, leave the body with their friends for as long as it takes. You know, and again, it's us trying to translate their behavior. Does it, you know, we wanna make sure that they can say goodbye in whatever way that is. I've seen rabbits hump, they're dead, you know, actually mount their dead partners. I've seen them um, sniff them, lick them, lay down with them. I've seen them dance after a partner has died and they've seen their, you know, the, the other rabbit. And then I've seen sometimes where they just ignore them altogether. They act like they don't even see them or know that they're there. So what's happening in all those cases, I don't know. You know, my best interpretation is that just like humans, everyone expresses grief differently. And so for some, it's going to look kind of joyful and in others, it's going to look sad. Um, and in others, it's just going to not even make sense to us. Um, but the, we absolutely make sure that we at least give them that opportunity. Um, and in my house, I've done that with all of my other animals as well, because it just, if you live in a you know a multi-species household and all of a sudden one of the members of your household is just gone it's gotta it would be terribly disorienting for everybody in the household so for us it's just it just seems normal to do so yes and i think it's so important what you mentioned about you know all individuals and how they react and of course that can be from a species uh, level on how species might, you know, have more similar ways in reacting, but very much so the individuals and how they react to, you know, the others in the house or in the group. And, uh, and also the big transformations that can happen. Like, for example, I've heard, I don't have uh, any companion animals myself, but some of my friends have cats. And they said, you know, when, when one passed away, the other one became almost a totally different cat. Mm. So that's the other right. aspects, right, of um, right. Not, nece yeah, not necessarily understanding what all the dynamics are and how other, you know, animals from the same species, even though there's obviously a lot, a lot of different breeds of cats, might perceive each other. So even right. if you think they get along very well, then suddenly you might have a very different animal when one passes on. Right, 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 which, which shows how just as for us, you know, um, our, our own identities as a social species are entirely relational, right? I mean, how, how we are socialized and how we develop our sense of self, everything, it has to do with relationships with others. And with other social species like rabbits or dogs or even cats who we've always thought were individual animals, and now there's much more of an idea within the cat scientific literature, the cats actually are social as well. Um, to, of course, then also their, um, their lives are also heavily bound up in their relationships with others, not, not just in terms of, you know, who you hang out with all day, but yeah, what it means to you yourself. And again, there's no way we can kind of interrogate this inside, 
but when you see those kinds of changes after the death of one animal, you know, that shows how important relationships are. And at the very least, it should tell us for people who think, oh, having one dog in the backyard all day by himself, that that's fine. Of course, that's not fine. Yes, no, absolutely. And I, I talk and think about that all the time. And, and again, I don't have companion animals. I'm actually allergic to all animals, which is a really oh, you know, inconvenient nice. thing if you're doing yeah. what I love doing but, and, and love animals. But uh, I often see people with their dogs and, and how to interact with a dog or not interact or how they let dogs interact with each other on the street or in parks. And I often feel very sorry for for most of the dogs um but yeah that's another topic again uh, that we could spend a lot of time on Uh, but going back to you know dealing with the loss of a loved one you talked um, about different rituals do you have any other you know advices or suggestions or ideas that you know could be helpful for care professionals listening um when they lose you know the animal an animal that they really care for um, I think I think that reaching out to others. I mean, I'm I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychologist or anything like that. But um, but I think that 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 having people who care about you and or and who also care about animals to talk to them. You know, for for people who would feel ridiculed or um, just alone. You know, by if they if they admitted, you know, how much they, they love this animal who has died. Um, again, reaching out to people who are sympathetic and who care. Um, another kind of example I might want to give from the book is, there's another um, chapter in the book, and I, I can't believe I forgot who the writer is, and all my books are packed up right now since we're leaving in a week, so I can't even look it up, but, um, or I could on the computer, I forgot. Anyway, one of the chapters in the book was about a cat who lived in a village in England, I don't even remember the cat's name. The cat was not owned by anybody. He was a quote unquote kind of community cat and he died. And when he died, it really kind of changed the community. So it's, it's an interesting look at how um, an animal can touch people's lives without being in a um, sort of a typical quote unquote owner pet relationship because that wasn't happening with this particular cat. But after the cat died the whole community came together and publicly mourned and shared and you know created a memorial for the cat Um, and it's very moving and very interesting to kind of think about how people can come together um, for an animal that um, again wasn't even their pet Um, yeah I'm not sure if I have a a good reason why I told you that story but um, (laughs) It's another, I guess, example of the way that the people can mourn and the, the fact that these were people who were in a community together, maybe didn't even know each other that closely, but the death of this cat sort of brought the people together as well. Yes, no, absolutely. I think that's a beautiful story because, you know, maybe the not everybody in that group will have a diff, will have the same feelings or thoughts about that cat, but they have you know, they want to, as a group, support each other. And, and that's just such a beautiful thing. And, and also very important, especially uh, to be able to reach out to the people who, you know, care for you or the community that you're in uh, so that you feel supported while you're grieving uh, an animal that you really care for. 
So thank you so much for sharing that story. And then, you know, we've already been over an hour talking and there's so much more to say, but, and I thank you so much for, you know, coming onto this podcast. And of course, everybody likes good stories and especially also, you know, stories about animals. And could we conclude with some nice stories like real, that real rabbits have told you uh, in one way or another? What are some of the stories you have heard from rabbits? Um, gosh. Um, <laughs> oddly, I've never been asked that question before. Um, well, what are some of the things that you have learned from rabbits about rabbits what you know matters to them what what are some of right. the whispers that you have picked up as you have you know for over three decades been around rabbits um i think the the, the one thing that i can say is that what I've learned is that rabbits, and I'm gonna extend this to other animals because why not, that rabbits are so much more flexible and adaptable as a species than you ever could have possibly known if you'd read any book on rabbits written, let's say before 30 years ago. Um, so if you if you read kind of any classic sort of animal behavior type of a, of a discussion about any animal, they're away, you know, it's rabbits are this and rabbits are that. Rabbits do this and rabbits do that. And then, and those are usually based on either wild rabbits or they're based on rabbits in captivity in a sort of a caged in research situation. But then when we see the rabbits in our homes, we see that, wait a minute, so yeah, all of my rabbits thump and they all do this and that because that's part of their species sort of repertoire. But then they do so many more things. They create, they plan, they manipulate, they work together to create trouble, they have agendas, and I mean, and it's all different. And every rabbit expresses them differently, and every household, depending on the humans and the other animals in that house, all create a different environment in which each individual within that household expresses, can express new facets of their being that simply were like invisible to researchers before that time. And, you know, so I'm in this weird position where I started writing about rabbits with no expertise, uh, I should say scientific, right? No credentials. I didn't have any kind of training in studying animals. And I studied animals in my own home, which is certainly not what any kind of scientist does. So it's already sort of, you know, that kind of work is going to be treated um, as not legitimate science. And then, and then to find that because of this environment in which my rabbits live, that they express things that were not seen before in any of the other writing means that um, how we do science and how we look at animals is so um, dependent on everything else. Um, it's, I guess what I'm saying is, and this is something that, that we're dealing with in the, the class that I'm teaching with Gay, is that we have to break up kind of traditional scientific ways of understanding animals because if we stick with these old kind of objectifying views of a species we will never see the individual variation and the flexibility and the um, sort of creativity um, of of animals if we continue to only see them in in you know that kind of 
animal behaviorist kind of a model. So, you know, your question was what stories have I kind of learned or been told by my rabbits and I somehow can't come up with one, but what I can come up with is the idea that the stories are sort of ongoing and, and constantly surprising. Um, yes, because, I really like that. I mean, and, yeah. and you say like, you know, they have agendas, they got their own personalities, they do, you know, they come together to create, you know, some trouble. There's this richness of another being uh, that often is, you know, not necessarily seen as such. Uh, I think are some of the beautiful stories that you've certainly learned from being around rabbits. And I think, you know, it's probably very true for others who have spent a lot of time with other animals, including rabbits, uh, as we really learn. And I think your point on the science and how we look at animals and, and talk about animals and understand them uh, is certainly something that I, I am also extremely interested in and, and, yeah, I like you mentioned also these different types of research methods. Um, I can certainly say for myself that my training as a psychologist and I have a master's in animal studies has certainly shaped a lot of the ways of how I look at things and that I sometimes feel myself thinking that it needs to be validated in such and such way that these right these research methods are superior to others uh, just of, because of my training and to be able to step away from that and, and is not necessarily easy, but to be aware that you're doing that and that you're having only that particular lens or two uh, rather than many others, I think is such a valuable exercise, at least for myself. And certainly this you know, conversation with you has been uh, very enlightening also for me today. So thank you so much for that. Oh, you're so welcome, Sabrina. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so thanks for yeah all the different stories and, and giving really good background also on, on anthrozoology and all kinds of uh, human-animal studies. And we'll make sure to put links to the Animals in Society Institute and, of course, to the Canisius College and your new workplace where you're moving to next week, I hear. Yeah. Montana, <laughs> that's so exciting. Um, I really, you know, want to hear more once you're there, how it's going. And of course, you know, your website where people can find the books and, and everything else about rabbits. So it's absolutely Great. cool. So thank you so much for being on the podcast and uh, looking forward to hearing from you more some other day. Yes, thank you. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? then check out PAWS, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing.